Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, in seconds, Robert Poland will outline the economics of how single-payer could work in California. And at the bottom of the hour, Michael McCarthy will explain how we got our current private pension system, how workers' savings got appropriated by Wall Street for its own ends. As many listeners probably know better than I, the bill to set up a single-payer public health care financing system in California was blocked last week by Anthony Rendon, Speaker of the State Assembly. The move was applauded by mainstream Democrats, who sounded like Republicans used to before they went completely crazy, complaining about costs and bureaucracy. This spectacle would be amusing if the stakes weren't so high. The Republican-controlled Congress is trying, without much success so far, to repeal Obamacare. All mainstream Democrats are doing now is hanging back, hoping the move fails and brings disgrace on the GOP. That may happen, but you can't really beat something with nothing over the longer term. Obamacare never had an enthusiastic base of support outside a vocal chorus of neoliberal Democrats. It was a classic example of neoliberal social policy, addressing a pressing social need through the creation of new markets, the insurance exchanges, with the heavy involvement of the private sector, insurance companies. It requires people to buy private insurance and offers subsidies for the less well-off to do so. It has expanded coverage. The share of the population without any kind of health insurance has fallen from about 16% before it took effect to 9% today, according to the Census Bureau. Gallup's numbers are about two points higher on both ends. But forcing people to buy a deeply flawed and expensive product, health insurance, from a sinister bunch of for-profit companies who make more money by denying care is a perverse form of policy. Yes, the expansion of Medicaid in the states that allowed it was a good thing, and the subsidies made people able to buy insurance who couldn't before, but it still left a large portion of the population uncovered and did nothing to reverse the trend of forcing people to pay more out-of-pocket for care. A national single-payer system, or Medicare for All, would be a much better option, and would also give Democrats something to offer as an alternative to a system that lots of people are unhappy with. But they're still stuck on their Russia obsession. Could states do single-payer on their own? Some analysts are skeptical, but not all. The economist Robert Pollan, a professor at the University of Massachusetts, and three of his colleagues, James Heinz, Peter Arno, and Jeanette Wicks-Lim, wrote a paper showing just how it could work in California. It's all quite practical, and here's Bob Pollan to tell us why. Let's just start with a general question, Bob. Uh, there are some people who are skeptical that single-payer could be done at a state level. Is that possible in your view? Uh, yeah, I think it's very possible. I think it's uh, a reasonable proposition, especially for large states. California being obviously the largest state population-wise. And the reason it works better in large states is because of these issues around uh, bargaining power, that a large state like California uh, is able to bargain against pharmaceutical companies and if the state of California is going to do block purchases of drugs, uh, they have a lot of bargaining power, whereas a small state like Vermont doesn't have that power. I don't want to say that uh, single-payer couldn't work in a small state like Vermont. It, it could. It would just be more difficult. What about um, illness tourism, though? Wouldn't, isn't there a risk that people will get sick and move to California? They have to have some kind of residency requirement on these things? The, uh, the bill in California does have a residence requirement, so you know it's protected to that extent. At the same time, I mean, it's also true if, if somebody is just in California anyway and shows up in an emergency room, they're going to get treated, whether they're a resident of California or not. So, uh, you know, the problem exists in general. And uh, beyond that, the big way that that question comes up is with respect to undocumented workers. And the way, at least, that I designed the proposal for California, uh, it's going to be financed to a significant extent by a sales tax. Anybody who is residing in California, legally or not, is going to be buying things, and that therefore they're going to pay sales tax. So they're going to be putting in their share uh, into the single-payer system. Okay, now the broad outlines of the scheme. Uh, how complete is the coverage? Deductibles, co-pays, what does it look like? In the California proposal, I, I didn't draft the bill. I just did an analysis based on a bill that was already drafted. But in the California bill, there's no deductibles and no co-pays. Um, and that is, you know, controversial, that that is going to induce people to show up at the doctor way more than they ever had before, and that's going to be costly. 
So we did address in our research, we looked into how significant we would expect that to be. And we did basically adjust upward um, total uh, usage rates for patients by about 10%, which was a figure we developed out of the literature. And so we, we do account for that. And, you know, to a large extent, what that represents is the fact that at present, people with ha that have insurance, but that the deductibles and copays are very high, so they're discouraged from getting needed treatment. Under single payer, we assume they're going to get the treatment that they need. One of the things that dampens uh, the demand for the medical services under single payer is that you uh, do not have the same inducements for uh, providers, for doctors, to do excessive treatments because they won't be making more money off of the excessive treatment. So combining that uh, with an assumption that there will be more demand from patients, yeah, I adjusted upward about 10%. And just generally speaking, I was impressed throughout the, your paper that uh, your, your assumptions are rather on the conservative side, so this is not a reckless uh, set of stats you're working with. I uh, basically worked, you know, this is a huge literature, uh, not just on single payer, but on all of the components that go into any healthcare system, such as, uh, you know, this, the issues around fees by providers, pharmaceutical prices, uh, this issue of physician-induced demand of physicians uh, piling up treatments. There's, there's extensive literature in all of these areas. So basically what we did was we just took basically conservative end assumptions uh, around all of these issues, and that's how we came up with our cost figures. Uh, now, what does the current landscape look like in California, the, the, the share of the uninsured, the share of the partly insured? Uh, who does the insurance? Right now, there's about 7.5% um, uh, or 2.7 million people who are uninsured. And then there's about 12 million people, or about 33% of the population, that are underinsured. And by underinsured, we mean that they're, uh, the costs of, of them getting treated are too high, even though they're insured, that their copays and deductibles are very high. So if you add those two groups up, that's about 40% of the population. Um, so then we say that about 60% are adequately covered, even if their costs are significant, they are not significant such that they're discouraging people from getting treatment. So that's basically, you know, where we saw the literature is, is concluding on these issues. And parenthetically, uh, the, the co-pays and such, all the co-insurance schemes do uh, reduce demand or re do reduce usage and cause people to put off care, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this notion that you need co-pays in order to discourage excessive demand um, on the other hand, you know, what really is happening is high copays are uh, preventing people from getting necessary treatments. And so the, the idea in the California proposal that people use uh, the medical system to the extent necessary at least gets rid of this thing that people will, will not go to the doctors because they can't afford the copay. I mean, that is a problem at present with the uh, Bernie Sanders proposal, the Medicare for All proposal, he does still include pretty significant co-pays, and uh, so that will continue to discourage people. Okay, so what do you got uh, got in mind for California? How could California uh, move towards a more <laughs> civilized system of healthcare finance? Well, the this you know it's pretty basic stuff. Once you get through these issues is to, number one, the question you just asked me, how many people are uninsured, how many people are underinsured? How much, if you get rid of co-pays and deductibles, how much are you going to get an increase in demand? I mean, these are things, and I'm not the person to resolve them. I, I just did, as you said, I just took conservative assumptions. So if if you add all of those things up, what the the in 2017, the state of California is going to spend $370 billion on health care. And of that, 70% of it, or about $225 billion, is already being covered by public sources, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and uh, other state sources. So, you know, the notion that we would be going from this 
free market system to a state-controlled system completely ignores the fact that you already have 70% of the funding coming from the state. So what happens is that under single payer, the 30% that's coming from private insurance will be supplanted by 30% uh, spending uh, from tax revenues. So uh, we propose uh, two taxes, a tax a, on gross receipts, uh, business gross receipts at 2.3% and a sales tax at 2.3%. But then we, to keep these uh, taxes equitable, we have an exemption basically for small businesses. It's a $2 million, the first $2 million of of receipts are exempt, so that basically exempts all small businesses. And then we have an exemption for necessities on the sales tax. So it's a it's a very progressive way of funding the single payer system. Finally, what we found working from the literature is that we found that you could get about 18% savings relative to the existing healthcare system through a variety of, of means, uh, lower administrative costs, lower pharmaceutical costs, lower fees for providers, and you know modest improvements in efficiency. I'm speaking with Robert Poland, who's a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts and is the lead author of a paper on single-payer for California. Now let's take each of those things and turn the, uh, the, the tax on business, the gross receipts tax. It exempts small businesses, which most of which, I guess, don't really offer uh, um, health care benefits right now. So uh, the tax on you know, businesses with $2 million in receipts or above, uh, how would that compare to what they're already paying uh, for um, uh, employee benefits? Right. Most small businesses aren't, aren't uh, paying anything anyway. They're not covering their workers. So uh, they kind of net out at zero. Uh, now, there are some small businesses that are uh, providing health care, and they get this massive windfall, their costs as a share of payroll go, go down by 22%. Um, if we look at medium-sized businesses that are covering their workers, um, they are also going to get a quite significant benefit. Uh, as a share of payroll, you know, we're looking at something like between 7 and 13%. And then, even with large businesses, what we designed it specifically this way. At least if we look at averages, large businesses all the way up to businesses with uh, over a billion dollars in gross receipts, on average, they're going to come out about the same. They're going to come out, assuming they're covering their workers, which most of them are, uh, we show them as, as seeing a net reduction in overall health care costs of about a half a percent relative to payroll. Now, there will be ones at the end, you know, very large businesses that have tiny, tiny payrolls so that the, even if they're covering their 20 workers and they're a tech firm, uh, you know, they will see their health care costs go up. But uh, virtually all firms will not see any health care costs increase. Almost all of them will see health care costs go down. And then you look at uh, sort of average low, middle, and high income households. How do, how do each of those do? Low-income households uh, are on Medicaid, or, and in California it's called Medi-Cal. So they're going to come out about the same. Um, so they are going to pay sales tax on non-necessities, but we also included a 2% uh, tax credit for low-income households. So they're going to come out basically the same. Uh, Middle-income households are going to see you know, quite significant benefits uh, in the range of 5 to 10% of income, which is, you know, very, very substantial uh, by their health care costs going down because now all they'll just be paying is the, is the sales tax. High-income households will see uh, cost increases, but at present uh, in California, the way, you know, when you go through the, the tax write-offs for health care, High-income households are actually getting a tax subsidy on net. And so under this system, uh, yes, they will pay the sales tax. And since they spend more on non-necessities than anybody else, they will pay more. But uh, the increase, what we calculated for high-income households, even with the spending increase on sales tax, they will be paying um, less than 1% of their income 
on health care. So uh, even though they are going to be uh, financing the health care system disproportionately, the amount they're going to be spending is, is, is extremely modest relative to their overall income. And I imagine that uh, middle-income households are the ones where the co-pays and all those co-insurance schemes hit the hardest. Uh, that, how much relief would they get from that? Yeah, they're the ones that are benefiting the most. Uh, they're getting, yeah, like I said, 7 to 13% improvement, or reduction in total spending as a share of income moving to this system because, yeah, all of the, all co-pays, all deductibles uh, or, or self-insurance is all gone. All they have to do is, is pay sales tax. And by the way, they don't even have to do any of the paperwork to keep up with their health care. Uh, the system is there for them, and everybody is going to either pay a sales tax or a gross receipts tax, and that finances the whole thing. So one of the things I've tried to stress is that this proposal in California benefits more than anything else. It benefits middle-class households and small and medium businesses. They're the big winners. So, I mean, if we looked even at, like, the Chamber of Commerce to – uh, to the degree that the Chamber of Commerce is uh, being straightforward and representing the interests of their clients, which I take to be medium-sized businesses, they should be supporting this. They shouldn't be opposed. Of course, they are opposed, but they shouldn't be. <laughs> yes, well, small business and, and uh, the middle-class household is, you know, you almost expect patriotic music as a soundtrack. I know. I mean, it's, I mean why else would Warren Buffett be for it? Warren Buffett came out in favor of single payer. Uh, you know, it, of course, it's not good for uh, the health insurance industry, and it's not good for the pharmaceuticals, but uh, they're going to be okay. And um, this is very straightforwardly pro-business. Uh, it's pro-business, and it's pro-middle class. Okay, now the expenditure side, expanding coverage. You know, we've got, uh, what, something like 40% either uninsured or underinsured, uh, expanding coverage to cover that to 100% would raise costs, uh, but then you're going to offset that with uh, some cost savings. How does that all shake out? So we have um, about 7.5%, roughly 8% uninsured. And for those people, we are assuming and they do, they do uh, you know, get health care, not very good health care, and a lot of it's out of pocket. But there, there is health care spending going on. So um, we're assuming that the total health care spending on those people goes up by 50%. And then of the ones, the, the 33% of the population that is underinsured, we're assuming their health care spending goes up by 15%. That raises, so in 2017, total health care spending is going to be around $370 billion. We say, therefore, that if everybody's covered decently, it goes up to $400 billion. So uh, that is, by the way, also the number that the uh, staff report from the California Appropriations Senate Appropriations Committee, they also came up with $400 billion. What they didn't do was then look into any source of potential savings. So when we, when we add on the potential savings and we show about 18% conservatively in potential savings, that gets total cost down from uh, $400 billion to 330 So then it's just a question of how you cover the 330 Which is less, is, is less than what they're spending now, right? So they're spending 370 now. The whole health care system in California is 370 We say we can get it down to 330 with everybody getting decent coverage. So that's basically our finding. And where do the savings come from? 50% savings on administration because you're getting rid of the multiple payers and all this stuff that providers, that doctors have to do that they hate uh, to keep up with all the insurance stuff. So that's number one. Number two is um, through bargaining with the pharmaceuticals as a large-scale entity, we think we can get drug prices down by 30%. That is a conservative number relative to the literature. Uh, but anyway, we stopped there at 30%. Uh, number three, we say that providers, physicians, doctor, uh, clinics, and, and hospitals are going to uh, be their fees set at the Medicare rates. So the Medicare rates are lower than what private insurance companies pay, but they're higher 
than what you get from Medic Medi-Cal, Medicaid. So there are some savings there through setting the Medicare rates. And then finally, in terms of getting rid of excessive treatment and encouraging uh, preventive care, we think you can get about 5% savings there. So that all adds up to 18% savings. And you didn't look at any kind of second-order effects that might uh, come from such a major overhaul of a very large section of the economy. Uh, people would be spending less on health care, perhaps spending more elsewhere. But also there'd be a whole lot of people who would uh, lose their jobs, people working in these billing operations and administration and, and such. And then, of course, the health insurance companies themselves. Have you thought at all about uh, how to handle them? I'm working on that one right now, as a matter of fact. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, it's it's in process, so I really shouldn't give you the results because they may be wrong. But, um, you know, these are issues that we have to handle. I mean, uh, um, I've been working on that issue as regards the um, fossil fuel industry and my other work on green economy, because obviously we are going to need to transition out of fossil fuels. So what happens to all the workers? Same thing is true with the private health insurance industry. So uh, it's certainly a manageable problem. It's, it, is a, it is a problem, and I think it's fair to say that obviously my report, the one that's already done, it doesn't deal with it. It's also fair to say that the bill itself doesn't deal with it. So those are things that have to be added. And now the bill itself is uh, facing an uncertain future as the, uh, the speaker of the, what, the one, one house of the... Assembly, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's blocking it for now. What, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, um, when I was out there, I presented my uh, study at, at the end of last month, the end of May. Literally the next day, the state Senate voted in the bill. Uh, this was after I had been told that the state Senate was not going to take it up until next year. So things do change very quickly. I mean, literally, I was told on May the 31st that the state Senate was tabling it until January. Uh, as of June 1st, they passed it uh, with a two-thirds majority. So that could still happen in the Assembly. Um, you know, the argument that they're making is that the bill is not fully fleshed out, the financing isn't detailed. Of course that's true, um, but that's what they can do in the process of holding hearings and developing their own version of the bill, and then you have to reconcile the Assembly version where and the Senate version. So I don't really think that that's the reason that they've, they're they holding up the bill. I think they're holding up the bill because they're afraid to vote for it because there's a lot of money at stake here in the pharmaceutical industry and the, and the, um, the health insurance industry is obviously lobbying vehemently against it. I was Robert Poland, professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts and lead author of a paper, along with James Heinz, Peter Arno, and Jeanette Wicks-Lim, on costing out single-payer in Massachusetts. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Mad Rush by Philip Glass, performed by my old Manhattan neighbor, Bruce Brubaker. Next, pensions. My wife, Liza Featherstone, and I are working on a piece for In These Times magazine on the public pensions crisis, so you'll probably be hearing more about this topic in the coming weeks. Pensions have a reputation for being a boring topic, but we all need them if we live long enough, and the pots of money accumulated to pay for them are huge and profoundly influential. 
Pension funds hold about 12% of all stock, for example. And since they're managed by a relatively small group of professionals, as opposed to stocks held by millions of widely dispersed individuals, they hold an outsized influence over how companies are run. Pension managers vote the shares and lobby executives in similar ways, unlike individual shareholders who can't and don't speak with a single voice, or even mutual fund managers who generally stay out of corporate governance issues. How we got to this situation is one of the things that Michael McCarthy addresses in his new book, Dismantling Solidarity from Cornell University Press. And another thing he addresses, as we'll hear, is how companies have shifted the risk for themselves to workers as the defined contribution plan has replaced the defined benefit one. For decades, companies promised to pay a fixed monthly amount to retirees. Now most people who have a pension plan, just under half the workforce, are at the mercies of the financial markets. Employers contribute to the retirement plan, but how much you end up with depends upon how you've managed the portfolio and how stocks are faring when you retire. That's an awful development. But I also want to raise a larger, more radical critique. Who needs pension funds at all? Why build up these giant pots of money that are expected to earn sufficient returns to pay future beneficiaries? In the general theory, John Maynard Keynes wrote that while individuals can save for the future, a society as a whole cannot. Future provisions for the retired have to come out of goods and services produced in that future. And multi-trillion dollar pension funds contribute nothing to that effort. Very little of that money finds its way into real investment. It mostly stays in the markets, minus the cut taken by fund managers in fees and commissions. It's a mystery how pension funds can consistently earn a 7 or 8% annual return, which is what their sponsors generally assume, when the economy is growing at 1 or 2%. There's no magic in the financial markets that can reconcile those numbers forever. We need a more generous public pension system in which today's retirees are supported by today's workers, with the understanding that when those workers retire, future workers will be there to do the same for them. I was very gratified to learn from Michael McCarthy's book, Dismantling Solidarity, that back in the 50s, unions fought for a more generous public system. I wish they'd get back to that task now. But enough of me. Here's Michael McCarthy, an assistant professor of sociology at Marquette, with more. His book is published by the ILR imprint of Cornell University Press. Let's uh, start in uh, the years after World War II, when there was an explosion in the number of private pension plans. Uh, How did that come about? It's kind of an interesting story, uh, Doug. Basically, after World War II, um, you got this major push on the part of organized labor, uh, not just for increased wages, uh, but also better benefits, health care, and pensions. Some sections of labor kind of made this push around pensions in particular, uh, because it was they thought it would kind of get employers to sort of jump on board or be, become um, favorable of expanded uh, Social Security, the, the public program. Uh, UAW Walter Ruther was kind of famously famously pushed this strategy because he thought that it, it would sort of push employers to embrace a, a sort of more social democratic public uh, system. And before we proceed, we should emphasize that a number of unions were fighting for a broader public pension and even a uh, health care financing system at this point, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and most of most of the unions were one and the same. The, you know, it was the same unions were pushing for uh, better wages and, and, and benefits at, on the job site as were the, were the same unions that were pushing for a more robust public plan. I mean, there was a, the famous Wagner-Murray Dingle Bill that would have actually created a single-payer health care uh, program, would have, would have created a sort of more, a much more robust universal Social Security program. A significant portion of the labor movement was, was supportive of this bill. But anyway, after, after World War II, you had uh, the UAW, United Mine Workers, Steel Workers, uh, pushing for um, uh, defined benefit uh, pension plans, and, and that they came up against sort of uh, significant resistance. Employers were sort of happy giving increased wages, but they didn't want to adopt these uh, funded plans. And that, that's, this was kind of the, the reason for this massive strike wave in the years 1945 and 1946, the, the, the biggest strike wave in U.S. history to that point. Employers were resisting these demands, and um, unions were going out on strike. In all likelihood, in my opinion, it wouldn't have ended well for labor, because after World War II, labor was in a pretty weak um, bargaining position. One, there was a flood of uh, returning workers in the form of former GIs, and two, there was this rapid decline in demand for wartime goods. And so in, during the strike wave, actually, what you, what you find is that a lot of firms are perfectly happy to let their stock and equipment uh, just sit idle. Many don't even try to run uh, strike breakers. Uh, but what what happens actually is the Truman uh, administration kind of sees this 
and they had anticipated this uh, even during the war, um, and they kind of intervene in sort of some very critical ways in, in some big strikes to kind of force the hand of employers to, to adopt these, uh, these plans. They were interested in ramping up uh, the American uh, economic machine for, frankly, imperial reasons, right? Without a doubt. There was a significant amount of debate during the war about, you know, how are we going to manage um, labor relations after the war? Because during the war, you had these large institutions and agencies, things like the War Labor Board, that were actually overseeing, um, overseeing production. And you had sort of, you know, civic duty and things like the no-strike pledge that sort of unions were adopting. I mean, after the war, politicians were freaked out. They thought that it was all going to go back to the 1930s. And so you had like these this, these efforts to try to get labor and capital to sort of like establish a labor peace that were essentially political efforts. Uh, the most significant one being this uh, conference, the President's Labor Management Conference, which was held um, right after World War II, where Truman essentially tries to get labor and management to agree on a post-war deal, one in which sort of labor gets something, management gets something, and everybody's happy. That thing ends in a failure, essentially. Really, over the over the issue of the right to manage, that's that's something that labor was still pushing for at that time. Both labor and management go home with no deal and no agreement, and and what happens is, uh, you know, it kicks off strikes. Politicians at the time basically see these strikes as hurting the possibility of American growth, and in a way, they they had more more foresight, I think, than American capital because they were looking to those war-torn places like you know uh, Germany and Japan. Uh, other places in, in, in Western Europe as being really amazing new markets for American goods. And so they wanted to get production, you know, back on track and get get American capitalism working at full speed as quick as possible. During that big strike wave, essentially you get the state coming in, literally in some cases seizing pr- uh, production, forcing uh, uh, workers to, to work, or was the case in some instances, you know, bringing in outside workers to work, or which happened more often, threatening to seize production to get um, employers and, and, and labor to sort of come to agreements in their collective bargaining. And it was, it was a series of these kind of interventions which culminated in the National Labor Relations Board ruling about pensions, which was eventually rubber-stamped by the Supreme Court in 1948, that sort of put, forced the hand of capital to, to start embracing these, uh, these pensions, uh, which by, ne- by 1949... Even the most hostile elements of American capital, like folks in the National Association of Manufacturers, you know, were basically saying, you know, we have to do this now. We have to, we have to collectively bargain over pensions. Now, as I was reading the book, I kept wondering to myself, why pensions and not just wages? That's a great question. I think it has something to do with uh, labor's kind of strategic effort to get American capital to embrace uh, the more social democratic vision of having a, a more robust public plan. That was certainly what was driving the UAW. But then at the same time, if you look at the United Mine Workers, who, you know, John L. Lewis wasn't really pushing for a, a really robust public plan. He wasn't really much of a social democrat. And he he was kind of a one of the first to get to get pensions as well. So I think there are different reasons for different unions for why they were pushing so hard uh, for pensions and fringe benefits. It wasn't just benefits. They were also pushing for wages, too, wage increases. Now, having established this pension system or, or greatly increased its, its, its scope, next on the agenda was making sure that the funds were uh, managed in a very orthodox way, right? How did we get to uh, have Wall Street run the workers' money? I think this is probably one of the most fascinating parts of the story because after the establishment of these pension funds, I mean, they just, they grow tremendously. Total pension funds across the U.S. in 1955 had about $22 billion in assets, and if we, we go to their, their height in 2007, uh, right prior to the crisis, they had about $10.8 trillion in assets. GDP in 2007 was about $15 trillion. So mass, they, they got massive. Very early on, labor, labor understands that these funds could possibly be wielded in ways that were pro-labor, you know, in ways that could, could help workers or in ways that could be potentially socially beneficial. John L. Lewis actually wins control over his the United Mine Workers uh, Fund in uh, right after World War II in in a, in a contract that was established with mine operators. So it's amazing how acutely aware politicians were of all this because this this set off a number of debates 
uh, in Congress over what this might mean for the for for the possibility of labor power in the U.S. And, and politicians were very keenly aware that if labor was able to control these funds, which at the time weren't very big, they could become so big that that it would it would they would basically serve as a war chest. And that's actually what one Congress uh, person uh, called them. Senator uh, Senator Byrd, a uh, Democrat from Virginia, said that you know they, these these could basically be turned into war chests for uh, unions. What American politicians do is they establish rules that makes it make it very hard for for labor to control those funds. And the first kind of legislation that's passed to do this is is really Taft-Hartley. We know all the anti-labor stuff that Taft-Hartley does, but one of the things that a lot of people don't know about is that it sort of establishes rules for how the pension boards, these are the bo- these are the boards that uh control how the assets of the fund are allocated. It establishes uh rules for how those boards can be set up. The basic rule that it sort of lays out is that these boards can't be controlled uh, or the the number of seats on the board have to be at least 50% uh employer. So there can't be a situation where the boards can be controlled by unions primarily. This is kind of the first step in in moving moving control away from American labor unions into the hands of of employers and employer hired fiduciaries and and managers who are thinking solely about, you know, rate of return, right? And and thinking solely about how they're going to get the most bang for their investment dollar, which which basically means that they follow Wall Street trends. Pension funds end up kind of mimicking the trends that we see um in Wall Street. Another major major piece of legislation that kind of um solidifies this control, this corporate control over over labor's capital, which in which is in 1974, ERISA the Employee uh, Retirement Income Security Act, it does a number of things, some of which actually do make pensions more secure. Uh, but, w- but one of the things which is very clearly anti-labor is it, it clarifies this rule called the prudent, it was called the prudent man rule, now it's called the prudent person rule, which is a rule that basically sets the duties of the fiduciary, the person that's responsible of the fund, that's investing the fund on behalf of somebody else. And what ERISA does is it kind of, it, it makes the interpretation of that rule uh one in which pension funds and and institutional investors uh, like pension funds uh basically have to in, have to invest in ways that are similar to other kinds of uh, institutional funds things like mutual funds and and what we get is sort of this this shift uh after 1974 towards even more financialization of these of these pension funds investing in kind of risky equities instead of more secure bonds and things like that. I'm speaking with Michael McCarthy, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Marquette and author of Dismantling Solidarity from Cornell University Press. Yeah, it's interesting that you know, the, the notion of prudence, it's okay to invest in stocks which can collapse overnight or you know, more recently private equity and hedge funds which are extremely risky, especially if you don't know what you're doing. That's prudent. But like investing in worker housing or in reindustrialization or something like that would be imprudent by this definition. Yeah, there are some early guidelines that were very clear that said when when it comes to understanding what prudence is, we can only sort of consider financial factors, not these social factors, which of course is arbitrary and ridiculous because uh, investing in worker worker housing is a financial factor. Um, you know, in, in investing in good jobs that are going to create more demand later on that is a financial factor and investing in oil stocks is a political issue <laughs> right right the terms and the definitions that they use if you know if, when you just push on them a little bit they they seem they're pretty flimsy the kind of I- ironic thing is that during this whole time as these funds grow one person might look at it and say well look the funds got bigger you know they must have been doing something right uh but if you look at the actual way these funds invested they were deeply anti-labor, uh, you know, union pension funds investing in ways that were actually anti-labor. I mean, one way, for instance, is that the funds were increasingly, especially in the 1970s and 1980s, invested um, overseas in areas that had, uh, you know, highly exploitative uh, uh, labor regimes into companies that were that were moving sort of uh, manufacturing and production to, into areas where they could uh, exploit their workers to even, you know, higher degrees. You could say that they were, you know, directly contributing to a kind of a, a race to the bottom, if you want to think about it like that, of ra- labor standards. Um, 
they were invested uh, in ways that actually funded the buying and breaking up of companies and and and, and selling companies off by by these uh, uh, private equity firms. Ask me for uh, for, in, for instance, its Oregon pension fund uh, helped finance the acquisition and and breaking up and selling off and firing of all the workers of uh, the company Nabisco by this uh, equity firm KKR. Yeah, I think I believe the Oregon Pension Fund actually helped legitimate that whole enterprise uh, in the early '80s by uh, by throwing some money into it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you see you see the mobilization in, uh, of the, of these 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 assets, these which are you know huge. These are huge funds uh, in ways that are that end up being pretty clearly anti-worker. The UAW, for instance, was investing its own pension fund into um, Texas Instruments. It, it, it controlled about 2.8% of Texas Instruments in the, in the 1970s, I believe this was, mid-1970s, when Texas Instruments was a company that was actively warding off unionization attempts by many unions, including the UAW. And, and, and we see like there's a number of, there's a numbers of, of studies that show a, a very significant percentage of, of union pension funds were actually invested into, into very anti-labor firms. You mentioned two alternatives, right, about two alternatives, different ways of doing things. Uh, one, in this country, Carter's idea of a reindustrialization fund to, to fight the deindustrialization de that was taking hold in the 70s, and then also up in Quebec, the Quebec Solidarity Fund. So could you talk about these roads not taken here? Yeah, both kind of illustrate a way out, uh, if, if you kind of put them into a comparative context, um, and that is, you know, to, to actually gain control, to actually have some sort of democratic control over finance on the part of labor, on the, on the part of working people, uh, we need strong, politically meaningful uh, labor movements. And there was, an, there was an effort in the U.S., basically in the run, in the run up to the, the failed reelection of Carter against Reagan in 1980, to precisely do this. But it was a time in which labor was actually quite weak, uh, socially and politically. But basically what happened was Carter needed Labor's votes. Labor at the time, uh, the AFL-CIO, was becoming much more interested in the issue of pensions and pension investing. And Carter sort of put together uh, this economic revitalization plan, which which basically would have mobilized uh, pension capital uh, into into areas of, of the U.S. Uh, that had faced deindustrialization, places like Detroit, Buffalo, New York, to kind of revitalize them and bring back jobs and things like that. And uh, the state would have would have essentially get, uh, guaranteed a, a, a certain rate of return on these investments, right? So it, it would have kind of been a two percent, you know, guaranteeing a, a certain rate, and then you know, above that, that, that's the risk of the investment. And so this this basically would have kind of reinterpreted those issues about fiduciary duty that came up in ERISA, mobilizing pension fund investments in this way uh, would have required changing the law, you know, would have required sort of uh, reinterpreting, you know, how you can actually use those funds and for what purpose, because this is clearly for a social purpose, right? But this, this, this fails, right? It clearly fails because Reagan, <laughs> Reagan gets elected, and his alternative is to sort of uh, create these enterprise zones, uh, lower taxes, and, and that's the way to bring back uh, industrial jobs, which, of course, doesn't work. In Quebec, it was kind of interesting. Quebec, is, we, can, we can think about it kind of as a comparison, because in Quebec, the labor movement there was much stronger than it was in the U.S. at the time. About 40% of the entire workforce was unionized in 1980. They were also trying to grapple with these pension fund investment questions. In fact, most unions across Canada were at the time. And they, they, they became sort of aligned to this party, the Parti Quebecois, uh, headed by René Levesque, which, which was, at the time, was primarily oriented around winning independence from Canada. And they developed an, an idea of creating a fund, uh, which they called the Solidarity Fund. It would invest in venture capital, in, basically in, in small and medium-sized firms, but just those firms that were within Quebec. So the, the, the original political idea was to was to create a fund that could help kind of repatriate finance in, in Quebec and sort of build the economic basis of independence, right? And so, so uh, what happens is the, the, the FTQ, which is the main, the main labor federation in Quebec, becomes like the main proponent of this, gets support from uh, the Parti Québécois, 
and establishes this thing in, in 1983, the, the Solidarity Fund, which you know still exists today. It manages this money um, almost like a mutual fund where Quebec workers kind of contribute retirement uh, investments into the fund and the, the FTQ manages it, but basically invests primarily in, in uh, Quebec companies and companies that have you know decent labor policy and things like that. You have an example of of a situation of unions where that have actually, in a considerable way, been able to co- been able to mo- mobilize their funds, but it's a situation where they were much much more powerful because of their their size and and they had political support. In the U.S., the the both Democrats and Republicans have overwhelmingly worked against uh, using pension fund assets for progressive ends. And uh, we're running a long time, but now we're in this era where uh, the defined benefits plan is, is, is a fading memory. Uh, it's available to fewer and fewer workers, and it's all uh, about the defined contribution plan and the 401k and uh, self-reliance, you know, that old Emersonian virtue. That's right. That's right. If we kind of look over the, essentially since the New Deal period, the 1930s, we, we basically see a gradual shift towards the market. Uh, in the in the distribution of of uh, retirement income, you know, uh, we started out with this this unrealized promise of you know free from want, Roosevelt's fourth freedom in, in his famous speech, um, and and since then we've kind of we've more and more moved towards the market um, in the in the sort of uh, distribution of retirement income, and and that's exactly what 401ks and, and defined contribution plans do. Uh, they've come to kind of come to replace defined benefit plans um, since the 1980s. Uh, today, about 40% of the U.S. Popula- working population has a pension of some sort, has some sort of retirement plan, so the, the majority don't have anything. And of that 40%, um, 70% have a defined contribution plan. And these are basically things that that put the onus of investing on the actual employee, so they have to decide how they want to invest. And what they get when they retire is entirely dependent on how they invested. Whereas a defined benefit plan, uh, you're, you're, you're supposed to be guaranteed a certain amount uh, when you retire. We can see that these are, are, are very unreliable just by looking at you know, what happened in, 2000, in the 2008 crisis where the stock market fell by, by nearly 40%. 401ks lost in the U.S. alone about $2.4 trillion dollars. And today, you know, people going into re- retirement, if they had a 401k back then, they're going to, they're, and, and if it did recover assets, they're going to work, probably have to work about five more years longer. But most people uh, that have a 401k, or not most, about about 45% of people with the 401k in 2008 actually haven't seen their assets recovered. So they're, they're, they're very precarious, and it, it puts much more people, um, much more onus on the backs of workers to figure out, uh, you know, their own savings to sort of to pinch pennies here and there um, to sort of figure out how they're going to live in their retirement, if they're going to retire at all. Yeah, if you forego your, your latte, you'll be able to save enough for retirement, they tell us. Yeah, right, right. The point you make in the book over and over again is that these, this evolution of the pension system didn't happen spontaneously because of the logic of the, you know, the, the market, uh, the, the, the state and political actors were very active in shaping this evolution from the first. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. One thing that that folks with a, with an interest in labor history tend to do is to sort of put everything in a uh, sort of class conflict kind of lens. You know, either either labor was strong or employers were strong, and that kind of determines what happens. And usually that usually that explains things. You know, usually we can we can explain why labor wins or loses, or why why people have higher wages or lower wages or or better this or better that with that simple equation. But when you look at pensions, actually, the story is a little more complicated. You, can, you, you actually see that in each one of these major changes, the establishment of private pensions after World War II instead of stronger state system, the financialization of pension funds, and even more recently, the shift towards defined contribution pension plans, state actors are kind of like a key part of the story. And that's because state actors are, are constantly trying to manage capitalism. They're constantly trying to to, to uh, promote growth, and they're tr- constantly trying to to deal with the, the threat of crisis. And we see that uh, that in doing that, they've they've basically helped to marketize uh, retirement income uh, in the U.S. And now, if we can only see a way out of it. Yeah. <laughs>
That was Michael McCarthy, an assistant professor of sociology at Marquette University and author of Dismantling Solidarity, Capitalist Politics and American Pensions Since the New Deal from Cornell University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a memento of when Generation X was young, guided by voices, I am a tree. Till next week, bye. Of my bark, I have been stripped of it before.